going to be in chapter 8 as we continue on in our verse-by-verse study as we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus. And man, I can't tell you how much fun I've been having uh, teaching through this gospel with the start of this new church. And uh, for me, I get to see obviously Jesus at work in the pages of scriptures, but what's even thrilling to see also is is to see God at work in our lives together. And he is doing truly an amazing thing in our midst uh, as we've been journeying together now for a little over four months as a church. And um, I'm just praying that God would continue to pour out his grace and to pour out his spirit upon what he's doing here. And I've also been praying, Lord, would there not be any Uh, familiarity, any unbelief that would just creep into what he's doing in our midst. Because, you know, when I I read the gospel of Mark, and as we've been going through this together, my prayer has been uh, to see what we see in in Mark and then to say, God, do that in our lives. Do that here today among us. And so let's do that. Let's look into Mark chapter 8 and see what God wants to do in our lives together today. So, Beginning now, Mark chapter 8, verse 1, it says, In those days when a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them. So Mark gives us a time stamp where it says there, in those days. Now, we can gather from the immediate context that uh, those days was when Jesus was in the region of the Decapolis. And you remember that Jesus took his disciples on a little coastal vacation to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And you remember how while they were there, Jesus in the city of Tyre delivered a Gentile woman's daughter from a severe case of demonic oppression. And then a little bit later, As he goes then into Sidon and into the Decapolis, Jesus heals a man who was both mute and deaf. And right, he does it in a very unique way. (laughs) And perhaps it's because of just those two miracles that this huge crowd is gathered around. And we know that this crowd must have been mostly Gentiles. And I think that what Jesus has been doing in these last few studies is that he's been giving us a glimpse of his plan for the Gentiles in his salvific plan. And now we're not told what the makeup of the crowd was. We're told that it was large. Um, We're not really sure where they all came from, but they were in the region of the Decapolis. But can I give you just one possible reason for why all these Gentiles had heard about Jesus. Do you guys remember a little bit back in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus was in the region of the Gerasenes and he delivered a man from what was said to be a legion of demons. And this man got absolutely transformed by Christ. It said that he, you know, he was the guy that the whole town saw as this violent, scary person who lived among the tombs and then they saw him clothed and in his right mind and that man wanted to go with Jesus to be one of his disciples but Jesus told him to go and to tell all of his friends and neighbors what Jesus had done for him and we read that that man went out 
throughout all of the Decapolis, this 10-city region that was made up of mostly Gentiles, this man went up and he told his friends and neighbors all that they had done, that Jesus had done for him. Which tells me what God can do through one person's obedience to tell others what Jesus has done for them. I have to imagine that in this great crowd that's gathered around Jesus in the Decapolis, that there has to be at least some people who had heard about Jesus because of that one man's faithfulness to share what Jesus did in his life. And and it shows us what great crowds could potentially gather around the name of Jesus simply by one person's faithfulness. Amen? Amen. Well, Did you see what it says in verse 1? It says that they had nothing to eat. Now, this seems to be an ongoing problem in the Gospel of Mark. What's the deal with people forgetting to pack food? And so we're going to see what Jesus does about their hunger. So he calls over the disciples to himself, and he says to them in verses 2 and 3, look now with me, where it says, I have compassion on the crowd, Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And so Jesus sees this huge crowd and he sees that they are hungry because it tells us that they had now been with him for three days and didn't have anything to eat. So three days without food, you would expect that these people would be leaving to find a restaurant or go into a town. But what's so amazing is that these people that came from so far away came to be with Jesus because they didn't want to miss anything that he would do. They wanted to be in his presence. They wanted to witness his power. And so they stayed with him for three days without food. Now Jesus sees the situation and what does it say? It says that he felt compassion. And we've already seen Jesus have this feeling. Uh, In fact, you might be thinking that you have a little bit of deja vu right now because we're seeing Jesus minister in the same way that he just did a few chapters back. You see, Jesus is going to do the same kind of miracle that he did when he fed the 5,000 and how he felt compassion for them. Same kind of miracle, just different people. And so these mostly Gentile people are about to see what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus, I believe, is doing this because he wants to test his disciples. Let me say that again. He wants to test his disciples. Right now, it is training time for the disciples. They've been with him two years. This is the third year of the ministry. We've talked about how this is a transition point in Mark's gospel where it's now headed toward the cross. And if the disciples aren't getting it now, then we're in trouble. So Jesus wants to show his disciples what he does. And it says that he feels compassion for the crowd. Again, Jesus feels this pit in his stomach, this aching feeling when he sees this hungry crowd. And what's so amazing about the compassion of God is that the compassion of God always leads to the action of God. Jesus is going to do something to meet these people's need. And he realizes that if he sends these people away without giving them any food, 
then maybe that they would faint along the way because they'd come from far away. They had no food in their bellies to strengthen them for such a long journey. And so what Jesus saw as an immediate need for these people, they were hungry right then and there. He sees the immediate need, but he also sees a future danger that he can prevent. And in his compassion, he is going to do something now in order to prevent what might happen later. Which tells us that God is always looking out from us. You know what I'm saying? Where Jesus sees what you're going through right now, and he sees what could be a potential danger for you in your future. And so what God wants to do is he wants to do something for you today in order to prevent a bad situation in your future. That's why we always need to respond to God when it's called today. Not to wait, not to put things off, but to respond today because when we react and we respond to the compassion of God today, it prevents what could be fainting along the way in our future. Amen? And so let's see if the disciples feel the same way. In verse 4, his disciples answered him and said, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? <laughs> like you read that and you're like, really? Are they really asking how they're supposed to feed a multitude of people and they're with Jesus? And look, some people think that there is no possible way that the disciples could be this dull. And so there are some people who have even suggested and argued that this is just one miracle that got recorded twice. But that can't be the case because if you look down in verses 19 and 20, Jesus very clearly refers to them as two separate occasions. No, the disciples were really that dull. And their hearts were really that hard. And, you know, we don't have to look at the disciples. We, we don't have to look so, fa so far beyond ourselves to realize how forgetful we can be of the power that Jesus possesses. Amen? Look, I don't have to look beyond my own life to realize that we often experience something that I would refer to as spiritual amnesia. I'll be the first to admit that I often forget the previous works of God in my life that are supposed to be evidence of his present faithfulness in my life today. There are times when I'm going through a certain situation, whether it's about my finances or my family or, or my faith, and I begin to fret over what I think is like, God, how are you going to come through on this? When in reality, I'm in the exact same situation that I've been in before, but I've just forgotten that God was able to work it all out in the past. See, God has a proven track record in my life. I can look back on all of God's goodness and faithfulness in my life, but I get in these moments where I forget all about that. I have spiritual amnesia, and I, I get all worked up about, 
um, how God's plan is going to unfold in my life, and I feel all this anxiety and all this weight inside, and can anyone relate? Okay. Why is that? If God has a proven track record, if he has been faithful in every situation, why do we come into the situations again questioning his faithfulness? And so what does Jesus do? He, he does the miracle again. Look at verse 5 through 10. It says, and he asked them, how many loaves do you had, have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So an almost identical miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. As I said, different amounts of people, uh, different amounts of food, but Jesus does the same miracle. He, he performs it with order by having them sit in groups. He has the disciples distribute it. He gives thanks. Um, they ate and were satisfied, and they had leftovers. In the first story of the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 small baskets left over, and this time there are seven large baskets that are left over. And there's some interesting similarities and differences about these miracles. People try to compare the numbers and all that kind of stuff, but what we're going to do is simply focus on the fact that Jesus showed compassion again. He showed his patience with his disciples by repeating his work. And this brings me a lot of comfort. You know, I used to think that God would show compassion the first time. Oh, but what about the second and third time? I used to think that God would do a good thing in my life to demonstrate his faithfulness, but... I shouldn't expect him to do it again. Sometimes we think that Jesus is impatient with us, that he is short-tempered with us, and that he's keeping a tally on things. And we'd better not exhaust the grace and mercy of Jesus. Don't run out your luck. But here, what Jesus is doing is he's showing that he is full of compassion. For his people and he is patient and he is long suffering with us he wants his disciples and he wants you and i to see his goodness and his faithfulness always and so what will he do he will do things again for us how many times will god provide god will provide again how many times will god forgive you God will forgive you again. How many times will he show you his mercy, his compassion, patience? He'll show it again. God loves to repeat his works because he loves that we would see his goodness and his faithfulness always. Now, after getting in the boat and going to Dalmanutha, which is back in Israel on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is going to be met by some critics. 
Let's read the next two verses, verses 11 and 12, where we see that the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So Jesus comes back into Israel after a wonderful vacation, by the way. Um, if you were on vacation last week, welcome back. And, um, you know, he's been training his disciples on the heart of God. He's been with some Gentiles. He's been doing miracles that display the mercy of God. But then he comes to these Pharisees and they want to argue with him. And, and I want you to just notice something. Something that stood out to me as I was studying this passage is notice that in this encounter with the Pharisees that it is very short. Only two verses. And, and if you look in comparison to the way that he ministered to the Gentiles, that whole section before us, all of those verses about how he ministered to the Gentiles and what's going to come after about how he ministers to his disciples, in comparison Look at how little of time Jesus gives to the religious hypocrite that simply wants to argue. You see, the Pharisees came to Jesus so that they could argue with him and test him. And so if you come across people who just want to argue with you about religion, don't waste your time. You can't argue somebody into the kingdom of God. I like to say, that if you can argue somebody into the kingdom of God, then you can argue them out of the kingdom of God. See, to come into the kingdom of God is to come by faith in Jesus Christ, by believing upon Jesus. And these Pharisees didn't come to Jesus to put faith in him. They came to Jesus to test him. They wanted him to do a sign, which Jesus has done a lot of, miracles a lot of signs for people and and god loves to do miracles and he does them in his mercy and he does them um in his compassion however the sign that they were looking for they were looking for like a cataclysmic pie in the sky call fire down from heaven prove that you're better than elijah type of sign and jesus wasn't going to fall for their arguments and he wasn't going to fall for their testing of him. And so in this encounter with the religious, it says that he sighed deeply in his spirit. We've already seen these details that Mark's been giving us of the reactions that Jesus has been feeling. He just felt compassion for the multitude. That word compassion literally is a deep, visceral, pit-in-your-stomach kind of feeling, and Jesus felt that. And here it says that he sighed deeply in his spirit because of the Pharisees. I, I think that sign had some sadness in it. I think that sigh must have had some frustration in it because Jesus sighed deeply because the Pharisees who knew the word of God, knew the law of God, could quote it left and right, searching the scriptures for in them they think they have the, word, the eternal life but they were missing Jesus. They weren't seeing Jesus as their Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And so Jesus sighed 
and then he denied them from a sign. And in Matthew, it says that the only sign that would be given to the Pharisees was the sign of Jonah. What's that? Well, Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And in like manner, Jesus would be in the grave for three days, but then he would raise from the dead. See, Jesus understood that it is not signs that will make people believe. Jesus understood that because of our deep sin and rebellion, we don't need some cataclysmic sign. Jesus understood that because of our unbelief, he needed to do something extreme. And so he did by leaving heaven, coming to earth, living a perfect and sinless life, and then being crucified, buried, and resurrected because there is nothing else that is good enough to express to you how much God loves you and wants to save you. Listen, maybe you need to hear this today. There is no better way that God knows how to tell you that he loves you and that you should believe upon him in faith than by what he did in going to the cross and being buried and being raised from the dead from you. You don't need a sign. You don't need any other proof. What you need is to repent and believe. You need to repent of your sin and believe that what Jesus came to do to release you from your sin can and will save you if you believe upon him in faith and receive his grace. The cross and the empty tomb are God's greatest proofs of his love for you and if you won't believe based on that, then you won't believe based on any other sign or proof. So Jesus leaves those Pharisees rather quickly because he had no interest in arguing with anyone. He had a mission to accomplish. He had things to do and people to save. Why would he get caught up with the religious hypocrites? And so verse 13, he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. He leaves the Pharisees from the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, and with his disciples, they cross back over to the other side. And as they leave the Pharisees, he's with his disciples in the boat, and he gives them a caution. He warns them, cautioning based on that encounter, and that's what we read in verses 14 through 16, where it says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread. Oy vey. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So after a great feeding of the multitudes with plenty of leftovers, right? They had seven large baskets full of bread and they got in the boat. How much bread did they have? One loaf. It's getting kind of ridiculous to the point that it's actually funny. And, and how forgetful can these guys be? So they start talking to one another about the fact that they only had one loaf of bread for the journey. And you can almost imagine them saying that same line, where can we go for bread? How long the journey ahead of us? And Jesus hears them talking and, and he cautions them. He says, watch out. 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. (laughs) And, And the disciples, they hear the word leaven, and they get all worked up thinking that Jesus is upset with them because they didn't bring any bread for the journey. It's, it's like seriously funny. They, they hear him say leaven and they're like, oh no, we forgot bread again. But what was Jesus referring when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, was he talking about bread for your stomach? No. You see, when Jesus referred to leaven, Leaven is that yeast that is in bread that causes it to rise. And if you've studied the Bible, you know that God uses leaven as a picture, a symbolic picture of sin. And we, we could talk about this. I could pull up various scriptures that um, make that case. But let's, let's just come to the point where leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible. Now, what was the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? I would say that they are both pride. The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod are both pride, just two different forms of pride. Okay? So the leaven of the Pharisees is the pride of legalism and hypocrisy. And the leaven of Herod is the pride of licentiousness, which means loose living. And also I would say probably in their the, the leaven of political gain. Both forms of pride just in two different extremes. And so both the Pharisees and Herod wanted Jesus to perform signs, but not so that they could humble themselves and believe in Jesus to save them, but so that they could dismiss him in their pride. And Jesus said, beware of this leaven, because it only takes a little bit of leaven to leaven the whole lump. And at the start of uh, COVID, my wife got into baking sourdough bread, and I have been a happy man since. She, uh, she got this starter, and the starter is what contains the leaven or the yeast that causes the sourdough bread to rise. And she gave her starter a name. She named it Lazarus. Because what happens is my wife will make sourdough bread, but she'll go like long periods of time without making it to my chagrin. And, and she, um, when she goes to pull out that starter, she thinks it's dead. Like, oh, I'm going to have to throw this away and start over. But what she does is she puts a little bit of water and a little bit of flour. And whatever little bit of yeast is left in that starter, it comes back to life. So Lazarus lives in the back end of our refrigerator. And in the same way, we need to beware of the sin of pride. Because it likes to live in the back recesses of our hearts. And from time to time, it comes forth and it, it grows and it takes over. And uh, we need to beware of pride whether it's the pride of legalism or loose living. It's always going to try to rise up in your heart, and so you need to be cautious of it. That's what Jesus was getting at for his disciples. Beware of pride and unbelief. And so Jesus is referring to how they need to protect their hearts in this way, and what do they think he's talking about? That he's just talking about bread. (laughs) 
It amazes me to see what still needs to happen for the disciples, how they still needed to be humbled, how they still needed to receive the Spirit of God at Pentecost. Now, if you contrast the disciples in the Gospels as compared to the disciples after Pentecost, after they had been humbled and after they had received the Spirit of God upon them, you see a great difference in these people's lives. And it makes us realize how necessary in our Christian life, how necessary it is to have humility and the Spirit of God. And I would say the two go hand in hand. God needed to dwell in the disciples by his spirit if he was going to humble them and bring a transformation of faith. And that's what Jesus wants to do in your life today if you haven't submitted yourself unto him. Now, Jesus hears the discussion that they don't have bread and he's patient with them, but you need to understand that this this patience that Jesus has does not come without the correction of God. The patience of God does not come without the correction of God. And Jesus is going to rebuke his disciples for their lack of faith. Let's read the final verses, verses 17 to 21, and then we'll close it up. It says, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? See, this rebuke comes to these disciples because they should have understood by now. And when I read verses 17 to 21, I read it in a lot of different ways with a lot of different tones. Because, you know, we read the words of Jesus, but we we don't hear the tone in which he spoke them with. And maybe Jesus said these words kind of like a parent correcting their child. Maybe he spoke them with a little bit of frustration in his voice. Uh, Maybe he said it with just absolute tender gentleness. I don't know the tone that Jesus said these words with. But what I do know is what he said. He said, Why are you still talking about bread when you're with the bread of life? They should have perceived and understood that by now. Their hearts should have been softened to the reality of Jesus, but they were still hardened. They had seen all that Jesus had done, but they were not seeing with eyes of faith. They had heard all that Jesus had taught, but they were not hearing with ears of faith. And neither could they remember all that Jesus had done with them and for them for the last two years. And so he calls to remembrance these two miracles for the multitudes because the disciples 
needed to be called out for their unbelief. And perhaps today, you need to be called out for your unbelief. Do you not yet understand? Are your hearts hardened? And and look, I don't know what tone Jesus needs to take with you this morning by his spirit for you to have your heart softened and for you to understand the reality of Jesus, who he is and what he wants to do in your life. I trust that if you are his sheep and he is your shepherd, you will hear his voice. And there have been times in my life where God needed to have a firm tone with me and rebuke me. And there were times when God needed to have a patient and tender and gentle conversation with me for me to understand. So I don't know what needs to happen for you today, but I trust that God's spirit is capable of doing that in your life. But are you capable of humbling yourself, of repenting of any leaven of pride and unbelief, opening up your heart wide to what God wants to do in your life and receiving it? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, would you speak to these people by your spirit today? Say what you need to say in the way that you need to say it. And I pray that each individual that has gathered here this morning would respond to you in whatever way that they need to. I trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.